Let's pray, shall we? Father, we're thankful that you've brought us here tonight once again with the opportunity of opening your word. We pray that your hand of blessing may rest upon every moment that we spend here. Grant, Heavenly Father, that Jesus Christ, our wonderful Lord, will be exalted and glorified. We pray, Father, that you will just give us special insight into this subject of discipleship so that we might know how we as disciples of yours can better serve you. We pray then that this time might be profitable and to your glory, and we'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying the subject of discipleship. And uh, just again, let me focus in on the three areas that we uh, are covering in this series. First of all, the the first uh, broad area has to do with uh, discipleship in the book of uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and during the life of Christ, and demonstrating uh, the discipleship that is interrelated to Christ's earthly ministry. And uh, then we went from there to uh, the matter of discipleship in the book of Acts, and that's where we are at the present time. And uh, we talked about the spirit and disciple. We, we talked about uh, the subject of success uh, as far as the disciples' ministry was concerned, the subject of salvation uh, surrounding the disciples in the book of Acts, subject of soteriology, in other words. And then last week and the week before, we talked about the matter of soul winning. Uh, and tonight, we want to talk about the subject of service in regard to the disciple. And then after we finish this uh, section, uh, which will be several weeks yet, then we'll move on to a very practical section where we're going to try to give you some, some real significant tools uh, that you can use uh, to help you in your discipling ministry, to give you some ideas of things that uh, you would want to teach others so that they in turn could teach others to teach others and so on and perpetuate the ministry of discipleship. And so we want again to turn to the book of Acts tonight, but before we do, we want to kind of set some perspective. You'll recall in our definition of discipleship, which we gave way back at the beginning of this series and have reviewed it several times, we made clear that one aspect of discipleship, not the whole thing, but one aspect, one phase of the disciples' ministry is consistent involvement for Jesus. Not only involvement with Jesus, Christ called the disciples to be with him, but then he called them to be sent forth as well. And God calls us uh, to be a disciple of Christ, to sit at his feet, to take in that which he uh, gives to us, but not in the sense of being uh, like the Dead Sea, where you take it in and take it in and take it in and sit and soak and sour, but rather that you take it in so that it might flow out. You sit at the feet of Jesus Christ so that he might send you forth. Now, the apostles were sent forth to preach. And there's no doubt about the fact that the primary ministry of the apostles was a public ministry and a ministry of preaching. And that, of course, is a part of Christian service. But you know, unfortunately, there are a great many people that when they think of Christian service, they think almost exclusively of public ministry. And so they say, I'm going into uh, full-time Christian service. And by that, they mean I'm going to be a pastor, I'm going to be a missionary, something of that sort. It's my personal conviction that we all are in full-time Christian service. There's never a time where we should not be serving the Lord. It makes it clear in First uh, Peter chapter uh, 3 as an example that even when we are in, a, in an employment situation, that we're really serving Christ. And of course, Paul, in writing to the Ephesian Christians and to the Colossian Christians, underlined the same truth, that really you're serving the Lord Christ. You don't do what you do as men-pleasers, as unto men, but you do everything you do as unto the Lord. If that's not full-time Christian service, I don't know what it is. So we're all in full-time Christian service. But you see, as you go through the book of Acts, you find that the apostles are primarily involved in ministry that is public. And there's a great deal of emphasis there. But that's not by any means all of the service that is emphasized in the book of Acts. And so we want to 
encourage you tonight, because some of you uh, may feel like you don't have any gifts in particular or any talents. Now, we're confident that you have a spiritual gift that enhances your ministry. But it's interesting because a spiritual gift of, of uh, showing mercy as an example uh, can be utilized not in a public way many times, but utilized in a very quiet, unobtrusive manner. Uh, there, there, of course, is the, the responsibility of all of us to be involved in prayer ministry. And some people have that as a primary ministry, to just pray uh, for other people. And we're glad for people like that. How could we ever do without our prayer warriors? And we've known through the years a number of people who've had this as their prime ministry and really knew how to lay hold on the throne of grace for, in prayer. So all of these things are vital and important. But there are some very specific areas of service that are delineated in the book of Acts that I believe we can identify with. And so though you may not be able to teach, you may not be able to preach, then uh, that doesn't mean you're on the shelf or that you're a second-class Christian or a second-class disciple. There's no first-class disciple, second-class disciple. When a person is a follower of the Lord Jesus, he is one that is also sent for, forth to serve him. Now, in order to help clear away that concept of uh, public ministry and leadership being the prime ministry for Christian service, I think it's necessary to turn you to one passage of Scripture and illustrate it then with another. Matthew chapter 20, if you would look at that with me for a moment. Matthew chapter 20. In the 20th chapter of Matthew, you will recall that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has been approached by the mother of James and John. The mother of James and John, of course, like any good mother would be, wanted to see uh, her sons get ahead. And uh, so she approached the Lord Jesus and tried to get a commitment out of Christ in regard to the future and said to him, Lord, wouldn't you permit that uh, one of my sons sit on your right hand and the other sit on your left in the coming kingdom. And uh, Christ, of course, responded by saying that you don't know what you're asking. Why, if, if that were to be uh, true, then uh, do you realize what the cost of real leadership involves? Are they willing to, to be baptized with the baptism I'll be baptized with? Are they willing to drink of the cup that I'll drink up. And um, the, uh, the idea of, of doing that um, probably appealed at this point. They hadn't seen the cross yet. And it appealed to them to some degree. It sounded challenging and exciting. And uh, they, without real knowledge, zeal without knowledge, said, we are able. And Christ then revealed something that, of course, would come, become literally true. He says, indeed, you will be baptized with the baptism that I've been baptized with. And all but John died a martyr's death, and John perhaps suffered more than any of the rest. They all suffered for the name of Christ. You indeed will drink of the cup that I will drink, that I will drink up. And uh, indeed they did, for they tasted the bitter dregs of sorrow uh, throughout the years of their ministry subsequent to the cross. But now, the ten heard what was going on. They found out about this little situation. The grapevine was uh, pretty good, and uh, it always works best if it's a little bit sour, sour grapes, and that's what they, this was. And they began to gripe. What business do they have to ask for a place of special prominence? We're as good as they are. Now, if you analyze that, you realize that this this really illustrates much that we have in Christian circles today. There is unfortunately a lot of feeling and jealousies. Why did they choose him for leadership? Why not me? Why did they allow him to teach that Sunday school class? I had hoped to teach it. Uh, why did they put me with junior boys and uh, someone else gets to teach the adults? Uh, why don't they ever ask me to, uh, to do this or that or the other thing? Why is it uh, that uh, all the good jobs are given to this person or that person, the other person, and I get all the dirty jobs? 
Why is it? And you see, this is a, a prevailing attitude, maybe not always spoken, but unfortunately many times found in Christian service. We find that this can happen. I know that the Campbells can attest to this. They're involved in, in ministry there in France with all kinds of teachers. And they have people of high spiritual caliber. And yet, so many times a person can be disappointed on the mission field in a situation where they're given something less to do. And, uh, and, they, and they, the old nature just rises up and they want to fight against, <laughs> against the thing. And then they, they're mature enough that they kind of handle it. But it's a struggle. And there are these jealousies that arrive. And it, all of this comes because of a misconception of the concept of leadership. I'm convinced that our whole society is geared to teach us and to brainwash us into thinking that, that uh, the method of the mother of, of James and John is the correct method. That's manipulation. Manipulate. Do everything you can to move your way up the ladder. And you'll read books uh, that, that even now uh, are on the, are on the uh, uh, book tables and even sometimes in Christian settings. Uh, how to manipulate your husband. Um, how to, how to uh, uh, psych your boss out. Uh, you read some of the chapter titles in some of these books uh, in the, the, the section on psychology, business psychology, and you'll find that this is, a, this is a very real thing, that this is the way you get ahead in the world is by tromping on people and manipulation and all of the rest. And Christ immediately rallies to this. And he makes clear that indeed, that is the pagan model of leadership. Notice what it says, if you look now at Matthew chapter 20. He says in verse 25, he called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. And they that are great exercise authority over them. They struggle to the top, and when they get there, they make sure they stay there. They play king of the hill. And believe me, it's, it's fighting tooth and nail to get to become the king of the hill. Once you become, it's fighting tooth and nail to keep it. But nevertheless, that's exactly the way the world plays the game. It's tragic when that's placed into a Christian setting. The next verse says, but it shall not be so among you. Now take that to heart. It shall not be so among you. In God's economy, the biblical model of leadership is totally different. It is not the dictator. It is not the ruler, the dominant Lord. Rather, Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister, or as Williams puts it, let him be everybody's slave. You serve. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, Jesus Christ, of course, illustrated this in the 13th chapter of John, and we studied that a bit when we were studying the subject of discipleship. Let me just refresh your memory. The Oriental custom, and this, of course, is the Orient in the, in the sense of the Near East, was to have the lowliest person of a party wash the feet of those that arrived for a dinner. That was a very common thing. And uh, the Lord Jesus Christ did not assume that place of servanthood immediately. I think the tack behind that was simply because he allowed everyone an opportunity to choose the servant's place. Recall that the Lord Jesus Christ had already taught not only this lesson, but a half a dozen other lessons in the Gospels concerning the servant concept, the servant leader concept. And so therefore, the disciples had already had their lesson in the classroom. They now were in the laboratory. 
And if you've ever taken any of those science courses where you have both classroom and lab, you find out how little you learned in the classroom when you get into the lab and blow it up. And that's exactly what they did. They failed the course because they couldn't pass the lab test. They went into that laboratory in the upper room and the Lord gave them all an opportunity to wash the feet. Whenever there was a servant present, he of course would assume that role. But this was a private party, so therefore the most lowly of the bunch would take the towel. Christ rises, he takes the towel, and he washes the disciples' feet. And then he tells us that you're to do the same thing. Now mind you, that doesn't mean we are to wash one another's feet. The only reason Christ washed their feet was because that they needed it. They wore sandals, the roads were dusty, and uh, it was considered inappropriate and unclean to eat without your feet being washed. And that stubborn bunch of men were there just waiting for everyone else to be lowly until finally Christ set the example of what we ought to be one to another. There are some churches that today practice foot washing. I had a, a friend uh, that was a pastor in Spokane of a friend's church where they practice foot washing. And he said, he told me, he says, you know, he says, it's just despicable. He says, our people perfume their feet. They wash them and everybody gets them all clean and perfumes them beforehand. He said, the whole purpose of foot washing was because people, uh, it, was a, it was a gesture of kindness. But he said, the thing, the thing that happened was people would not wash dirty feet. They would just wash the clean feet. They didn't want to wash the dirty feet. And I think that's fairly typical of human nature. And that's, of course, the thing that the disciples struggled with. But Christ set an example that if you want to rise in God's economy to a place of leadership, you begin by the lowly task, even the washing of the feet or the least desirable thing that might be done. You see, Christian service involves serving the master, not the multitudes. We have a tendency to want to go public with our uh, gifts and with our abilities. We somehow want to be accepted of men. And certainly if you're a great orator, you may be able to be accepted of men on the basis of your ability to speak. But God says in my economy, I don't rank that high as far as the area of leadership is concerned. Go through the qualities, some 34 of them, of elders, the qualifications for elders that we find in the New Testament in passages such as 1 Peter chapter 5 and 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 and uh, other places. And you discover that much of that which is given as far as qualifications of an elder has to do not with leadership in, as we think of it in the classic sense, but rather with a willingness to serve. How we need to learn that as husbands. That God didn't place us as leaders in our homes so that we could become little Caesars. God placed us as leaders in the home so that we might effectively serve those that he's placed under our care. Now, I've got to tell you one story. Some of you may have heard me share this before. But I think it illustrates the point, and I think it's one that you ought to have in your hip pocket just by way of example in this regard. There's a young man who went to Prairie Bible Institute a number of years ago, having graduated from a very fine school of journalism here in the States and already had tremendous offers uh, to uh, be involved in newspaper work in the secular world. God put his hand upon him, touched him, he decided to go to Bible school. He went to Prairie, finished his Bible school, and went out to Africa to serve there with the, with the Sudan Interior Mission. The reason that they sent this man to the mission field and did it so very quickly was because they, at the time, were publishing what was to be a, a newspaper with a Christian slant called The African Challenge. And uh, it was the purpose of the mission to send this young man out there to that field because African Challenge was being published by a group of people who had no experience in journalism. 
And he was sent to that specific mission station because of his expertise in the area of journalism. And uh, when he arrived, he found uh, what would have to be considered in any case an intolerable situation. They had a veteran missionary who just happened to be a woman who was very much threatened by this young, experienced, sharp man that had come to work on that newspaper. And because she was so threatened, and because of severe jealousy, which, as it turned out, was the, his the history of this woman, uh, though it hadn't come to light, she decided that she would uh, put this fellow to the most menial tasks that she could find for the purpose of uh, getting him to go home uh, so that she could publish her newspaper without any help from him. And so she began to give him the job that she thought was the most despicable of all, and that of cleaning the toilets and carrying out the garbage. And uh, I remember hearing uh, Harold tell about this story and, and share this, and uh, it just really was exciting to me as a young man. It made such an indelible impression on me that the details of the story are vivid in my mind as I remember him sharing it. He said that three days of that was just about all that he could take. And uh, he struggled a tremendous battle. He told the Lord, Lord, I gave myself Christian service so I could use my journalism skills. I'm not using my journalism skills. I... I'm not going to take it. I have my rights. And he continued to wrestle with the Lord over a period of time. And he kept cleaning the toilets. And uh, it was a very, very, uh, very, very difficult thing, I imagine, for any of us. I think if any of us had been placed in a similar situation, we probably would have responded less spiritually than he did. But he finally told God, all right, God, you've had it. That's it. I'm not a missionary anymore. I'm going home. I can get jobs that are higher paying than this by far in much better conditions, and people will appreciate my abilities. Apparently, you don't appreciate my abilities. And so, therefore, I just quit. And he started packing his bags. And he said that it was almost as though God spoke to him and said, Harold, if you leave this mission compound, you're through. This is where I've placed you. This is my plan for you. This is my will. You say no to this. What is there? Do you think you can serve me by going your own willful way? And finally, after struggling with that for some time, he said, all right, Lord, I'll clean the toilets, and I'll do it joyfully as unto you. Well, to make a long story short, when he came to that place of total surrender and came to the end of himself and was willing to happily and gladly clean the toilets, God brought the director of the sanitary mission to that mission station. They had looked at the last issue of the African Challenge and wondered why there wasn't any change. They wondered why, with all the skills that this young man had, why uh, he hadn't been able to clean things up. See, God was already at work. He didn't have any worry about it at all. And the end result was that they found him. As they came on the mission station, began to try find out where his office was, they found out where it was. And uh, they found him cleaning the toilets. And they said, what's going on? He says, oh, I've got no problem. I'm happy to do this. It's unto the Lord. And they said, yeah, but that's not what we had in mind. They very quickly rectified the situation. And before long... He was editing the African Challenge and even today is still involved in the literature ministry of the Sudan Interior Mission. Now, I share that with you because I don't think that God can use any of us to the maximum until we're willing to wash the feet and clean the toilets and carry the garbage. I think we all have to come to that place where, we're, where we do not have aspirations of our own as to what we are going to do with our abilities. 
we have to come to the place where we realize that service for Christ involves you being a servant and willing to do what God calls you to do. I think if you develop that kind of an attitude where you work, you develop that kind of an attitude in regard to uh, the church, that kind of an attitude in your home and family, you're going to find a whole new harmony with those round about you. And I'm sure there are people that will take advantage of you. There are people that will walk all over you. And there will be times where you'll be tempted to say, well, I wasn't, I wasn't intended to be a doormat. But who says? By which standard were you not intended to be a doormat? Was Christ anything less than a doormat? When you think in terms of how they abused him, and yet when he was reviled, he reviled not again, but committed to him himself to him who judges righteously. All right, now, that then gives us some background and helps us understand what we're getting into here. We want to introduce you tonight, or maybe we won't get done tonight, probably won't, but we'll get started anyway, introducing to you four people who are specifically called disciples. In all four cases, they're called disciples. And then one that is not called a disciple specifically. After all, he, this, the, the fifth one is just simply a new convert, and he is not called a disciple. But he indeed was a disciple and sure, certainly showed how quickly uh, one man moved into a place of, of uh, real service for Christ after his conversion. So we'll uh, talk about that. Now, what we're going to do is, again, use the method that we used in regard to soul winning, the method of a chart. If you want to kind of have it in mind, maybe we can divide it up. By the way, uh, someone asked me last week, the notes that you got tonight was, were related to the material that we presented last week. And you'll get the material on this uh, subject tonight next week. We're kind of working it that way so that uh, rather than just reading the notes, you can actually uh, take notes and then uh, go from there and compare them with what uh, we, we give you in the way of notes. The first one that we want to talk about is a man by the name of Ananias. We've already touched on him in regard to the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. But let's turn to Acts chapter 9 and see Ananias in a little different perspective for a moment. Acts chapter 9, and I want to read beginning at verse 10 and read through verse 19. And there was a certain disciple, there's our word, disciple, at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way, entered into the house, putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way that thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight and arose and was baptized. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples who were at Damascus. All right, now, Saul of Tarsus has just been converted on the Damascus Road. 
And uh, the Lord has sent him into Damascus, where for three days he has sat fasting and blind. The Lord has made clear to him that one would come to him. So the scripture and the background we just shared with you. That's the Acts 9. Verses 10 through 19. That's the scripture. The next thing is the person. And that, of course, is Ananias. And the name Ananias means Yahweh is gracious or Jehovah is gracious. And so the characteristic that we would like to point out of this man is that he was characteristic of gracious service. Gracious service. The service itself was to care for Saul. It involved a number of things. I think in terms of, um, well, let's just turn to it. Romans 15 for a moment. Romans 15. Good passage to have marked in your Bible and on the flyleaf of your memory. Verses 1 through 3. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the impotent, the lame, the impotent, and not to please ourselves. In other words, a part of the Christian life is reaching out to those that are in a time of special need in a very gracious way. And that involves self-denial. It goes on, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. The, the goal of this kind of selfless service was the building up of the other person. Example, for even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. Christ is a demonstration of that kind of of selfless sacrifice, a kind of attitude that we should have one for another, where we please others for their good rather than merely pleasing ourselves for our good. All right? And then there's other detail, we'll call this. Other detail. You notice four things about Ananias. First of all, he was available. We see that in chapter 9, verse 10, where it says that the Lord said, Ananias. Just called his name, Ananias. And uh, the Greek uh, here uh, is, is, a, is very, very strong in answer. He didn't say, as we would say with the use of a verb, Behold, I am here, Lord. Uh, that's the way you have to translate it in English. You'll notice the, the words... M here are, are italicized because there's no verb here. And it's given to us this way for the purpose of emphasis. What he said was, the Lord said Ananias, and he said, Behold I, Lord. And in the Greek, that would be a, that would be a, a strongly emphasized sentence. And it's his way of, of reporting for duty. Uh, it's, it's, more, it's more or less like uh, in the military where, where uh, it's the yes, sir. Uh, that kind of a, a thing. It's not merely uh, a matter of, uh, of a man saying, uh, uh, yeah, Lord, I'm, I'm here, just a minute, I'm busy. Uh, but rather, yes, sir, and responding immediately to a commanding officer. That's the concept that we have in this passage. He was available. And uh, he was ready to, to respond to the Lord. But then the second thing that we see about him was that he became very quickly reluctant. Now, that's very human, and very, I'm very thankful the Lord made it clear that he had this, this brief argument with his servant. You ever find yourself arguing with the Lord? I hope that when you argue with the Lord, you don't argue any longer than Ananias did. But I think that you're, it's safe to say that most of us will have this week an argument with the Lord. The Lord will say, do something, and make it very clear to us. And we'll say, come on, Lord, you don't really mean that. No way. No, Lord. There's other things. I, 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 there's a little poem. I wish I would have dug it out. 
that says, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. Real service is what I desire. I'll say what you want me to say, dear Lord. Just don't ask me to sing in the choir. And uh, then it goes on from there, you know. And that's our attitude. And uh, we heard it again uh, yesterday, or Tuesday, you know, it was yesterday, uh, with Pat Robertson uh, in, his, in the ordination council. Uh, and uh, Pat, uh, Pat told the Lord at one time uh, when the Lord was pressing him into Christian service, uh, said, uh, Lord, I'll go anywhere except California. And the reason he wanted to come to California, he told us, was because he was afraid of earthquakes. And that was serious. He really was. He thought we had nothing but earthquakes out here. And, you know, where is he? He's in California. Isn't that interesting? And uh, I remember up at Prairie, every Tuesday night we'd have a testimony meeting. And uh, the first three weeks of school, uh, on those Tuesday night testimony meetings, about 90% of the testimonies said the same thing. Kids standing up there saying, I told the Lord I'd do anything he wanted me to, go anywhere he wanted me to, except Prairie. And here I am. And then the next one would say, I told the Lord I'd do anything except go to prayer. Here I am. You know, and that's, it got a little boring after a while, you know, because you, <laughs> once you've heard it, you've heard it. But it happened to so many people. And you see, so often the very thing that we say we don't want to do is the thing that God will call us to. And we become reluctant. Now, Ananias was very quick to report for duty until he found out what the duty was. And the interesting thing is that the Lord asks us for our consent and then, report, then tells us what the ramifications of what we've said really are. He doesn't give us his will as an option. He doesn't say, okay, now I've got five options here, and any one of them is fine. Which one do you want? He doesn't do that. He has a specific plan for our life, and it is a perfect plan. It's good, except on perfect. If he's got five of them, then four of them aren't perfect. They've got to lack something. God's got to have a best. And so therefore, anything less than that is selling out. And yet, we find ourselves so often reluctant. And what it amounts to is that we really wonder sometimes if God understands. We really wonder sometimes if God really knows everything. Because otherwise, we wouldn't argue, right? If we really believed they knew the end from the beginning, I mean, if we believed that in a practical way, would we ever argue? The Lord says, look, here is this man Saul. And this man, I, I want you to go to him. I want you to minister to him. And we've got a gracious man on our hands here. His name means gracious. And, uh, and he's, he's, he's characterized by this kind of an attitude. And no doubt the Lord had seen him take many souls and minister to them and care for their needs in some special way. But this was a different breed of cat. I mean, this was Saul of Tarsus, the Christian murderer. And so he had just a mild argument with the Lord. And then the Lord says, Ananias, he is a chosen vessel unto me. Aren't you glad for the fact that when we're reluctant sometimes, the Lord gives us reassurance. And he reinforced that by giving, again, as we talked about Jonah Sunday morning, he's the God of the second chance. And he didn't say, oh, you've had it, boy, I'll tell you, you said... You said uh, you, you're, you hesitated. He who hesitates is lost. So Ananias, no more. You're on the shelf, disqualified from now on. God didn't do that. No, he told us in Isaiah, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. And the Lord does allow us sometimes to share our doubts and our reluctance and give us his reassurance. But the thing that I'm thrilled about is that when he heard the reassurance from the Lord and the confirmation that he needed. He was obedient. He went all the way. He did it just exactly as God had commanded and found the conditions exactly as God said and found, the apostle, found Saul of Tarsus who would become the Apostle Paul in exactly the condition that God had said. You see, God's way is perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't goof. And so therefore, this one went in verse 17 and, and it did what God told him to do. And in so doing, I'm so thrilled with the approach and it shows the building of faith in this man. Here with all of his doubts previous, after having been reassured, it says in verse 17, he went his way entered into the house, put his hands on him and said, Brother, 
saw. Now that took some faith. Brother saw. Now the word brother is, is a term of endearment. Delphos is that which is, is, speaks of a connotation of common origin in life. And it has, a, it has a real implication of identification with the person. And so therefore, when he said, Brother Saul, he just put Paul right beside him as an equal. And uh, he didn't look down on him. He just simply shared in this way. So the fourth thing is he was gracious. This is a gracious, gracious service by the Lord's servant, Ananias. Now, we can learn a lesson from this. In fact, there's a lot of lessons we can learn. But you see, Ananias is never spoken of again in Scripture. We don't know a thing about him other than this incident. We don't know what happened to Ananias. We don't know if he was one of the early martyrs. We don't know if he became a flaming evangel for God. We don't know whether he ever preached a sermon. Because you see, in God's economy, the important thing was not the magnitude and scope of what he did in the earthly sense, in the worldly sense, or how much service was involved. The important thing was that when God called, he said, yes, sir, and he was obedient. And he reached out to the one who would become the flaming evangel to the Gentiles, the Apostle Paul himself. I reckon on the fact that when rewards are handed out in heaven, Ananias, if there's any, any thought or any idea of, of rewards according to, to uh, that which is accomplished by your ministry, Ananias is going to have as many stars in his crown as the Apostle Paul. Because had it not been for Ananias and one other person, a man by the name of Barnabas, who later on had a personal ministry to Paul, if it had not been for those two, but at this, in this juncture, this very crucial time, Ananias was the key. If it had not been for his ministry, we don't know what might have happened. We don't have to know. Because Ananias was faithful. And we need to be just as faithful. What if God placed you on this earth for, for your 70 years for only one task. Would you be willing at the moment God called to do exactly that? We had the privilege of playing a little football in our thinner days. And uh, playing in the backfield was always an interesting position because there was a certain amount of prestige. But the interesting thing is that the guy in the backfield, more times than you realize, is called upon to block for somebody else. Now you may be a better ball handler, and maybe a better ball carrier than the guy carrying the ball. But when he's carrying the ball, you're blocking. And when you're blocking, you're not getting the glory. Because nobody, almost nobody, pays any attention to the guys that do the blocking. I asked you today, you know, the name of the defensive line for the Oakland Raiders, uh, or the offensive line, I should say, of the Oakland Raiders, uh, most of you couldn't name one. Probably some of you gals couldn't even name one of the backfield, but that's all right. <laughs> but, you see, we just don't concentrate on that. You know, watch the camera. The camera keys in primarily, although they're beginning now to, a little more to focus in on their instant replays and so on, on the blockers. But primarily they key in on those that are, those that are carrying the ball. It's a rule of the, the rule of the game. Keep your eye on the ball. Uh, that's a crazy thing to do. You really ought to, once in a while, watch the linemen and see what they do. They do a lot of work in there. And uh, they call that in the trenches. And believe me, it is. There's a lot of work down there. But you see, the point is that, that 
God will sometimes call on us to run interference for someone else who will get the glory. Are we willing to do that? When we came to Lacey, Washington, I met Ananias. I met the most gracious man that I've ever known in my life, except possibly, outside, possibly my own father. Some of you have heard me mention Mr. Porteous. Uh, if you are interested sometime, read the biography of John and Betty Stam. Uh, Mr. Porteous is mentioned in there um, because he and uh, his wife were, were in China at the time that John and Betty Stam were martyred. And uh, he, was, he was over 40 years a missionary in the land of China when the communists in the uh, middle 30s uh, came down in rebellion against the Chiang Kai-shek forces. Uh, they took a lot of missionaries. They killed John and Betty Stam. They captured Mr. Porteous and his wife. And um, he went through a hundred days at the hands of the communists. Um, he's a man of, was a man about uh, six foot uh, five or six and uh, weighed less than 75 pounds when, they were, when he was released. Um, and Mr. Porteous, after all those years in China, had come to this little town and found uh, a little American Sunday School Union Sunday School uh, that was very much struggling. And he started ministering in that church and, and uh, ministered there for 14 years. And uh, during that period of time, they, it was just people came and people went because uh, there really wasn't much of a, of a church program per se, but... Um, nevertheless, he touched a lot of lives for Jesus Christ. And I'll never forget the first time I met Mr. Porteous. He told me, he says, Pastor Steele, if you come here, there's one thing that you'll learn about me, and that is that I play one instrument very well. He said, the instrument is second fiddle. He says, I'm just a crack filler around here. And he says, I'm willing to do anything you wish me to do. I don't want to get in your way. I just want to serve. Boy, man, alive. He was only one of five men in that church when we came there. But I thought with one like that, who can lose? I found out later that when they needed, when they needed a, uh, a basement in their the little church, and they did have one when we were there, that Mr. Porteous um, actually dug that by hand himself. And at that time, he would have been a man of 60 years old. Dug the basement by hand so that they wouldn't have to hire getting it done, so that they could have additional Sunday school classes. When we built our, or when we moved our building from Fort Lewis, Washington, down to our site, we put a full basement in the bottom. And uh, Mr. Porteous came along and he found out what the dirtiest job was that nobody else wanted, which was tarring the tile that had been put up. He just, he, he could tell. It didn't take long to tell that that was a job everybody else was reluctant to do. And he did it all. Around a building uh, 37 feet wide and uh, 80 feet long, he did all of the tarring. The outside of that building at that time, you see, he was almost 80 years old. Well, the Lord finally decided that he'd take him home. He was about, he was over 90. Um, he was about 90 when we left and then uh, continued to go on. And uh, my only regret is that we never had a chance to have Mr. Porteous come down and minister to you people before he went to be with the Lord. I wanted to take him to San Francisco to Chinatown because I was told that he can still speak Chinese better than a native. And uh, it would have, he would have had a ball with all those Chinese running around up there in San Francisco. But I just share that with you because can you imagine, here is a man who's, who's, who's written up in biographies, who, who is a man of, of real honor in China previous to the communist takeover, a man that was a leader in every sense of the word, and yet he's willing to tar the, the walls and willing to dig the basement, and willing just to be a crack filler. Guess what? He never got in my way, and he was my greatest supporter in the ministry. 
And I believe with all my heart that we, we need in this day and age to have that kind of a gracious spirit. Can you imagine what would happen in this community if we had that kind of an attitude one toward another? I mean, if all of us got on the, the bandwagon of wanting to serve, wanting to care for others with no self-interest, with no goal of glory, just simply wanting to meet the needs of those round about us. It's that kind of a servant attitude that God can use. A willing and obedient servant. Who knows how many Apostle Pauls will be produced from our willingness to go and minister to them. All right, now, the second illustration is also in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. This time it's in Acts chapter 9, verses 36 through 43. I'm sure you're very familiar with this story of service. It's in the city of Joppa. Dorcas has died, and she's greatly mourned. Peter's about 10 miles away at Lydda. Uh, If you're interested in this little uh, sidelight, Lydda is today Ludd, and Ludd is where the airport uh, outside of Tel Aviv is found. Uh, and so, therefore, uh, it's, it's very, very close uh, to the Mediterranean, right, right there uh, nearby, and only 10 miles from Joppa. And uh, the disciples sent for Peter, and uh, the widows were weeping and showing uh, the clothes that she had made Uh, when Peter came. And this is the background of this little story. Now, look at verse 36, if you will, and let's just read it. And now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. It came to pass in those days that she was sick, died and died, whom when they had washed, they laid in an upper chamber. And forasmuch as Lydda was near to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Then Peter arose, went with them. When he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by him, weeping and showing the coats and the garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth, kneeled down and prayed, and turned to the body and said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand, lifted her up, and when, when he had called, the saints and the widows presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. It came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon the Tanner. Now, the person involved here, of course, is Tabitha, or Dorcas. Dorcas... Uh, means doe or gazelle. And uh, if you're familiar with the, the uh, connotation of various animals in the ancient world, the doe or the gazelle was a symbol of gentleness. And so therefore we've dubbed the characteristic that was true of this woman being gentle service. Gentle service. Her service, well, first of all, it says there were good works. And that good work is defined as being the use of needle and thread. She sewed garments for widows. And then also it says alms. Alms deeds, actually. And that was the use of her substance. Now, we don't know whether how much money she had or anything else, but her giving, or her ministry was not only that of ministering with her needle and thread, but she took care uh, of uh, those that were in need with a fi- in a financial way as well, with alms. And so she was a, a very, very gentle uh, person, ministering to those in special needs. Now, mind you, when we start talking about works... Remember that we do not work for salvation. That's made very, very clear in, in Scripture. But we do work because of salvation. If you look with me at uh, 
the fifth chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. Very familiar verse, but one that we need to focus on a part of it that I think sort of slips over our tongue when we quote it. Let your light so shine before men. But you see, they don't see the shining countenance. That's not what uh, attracts them. The light is not a visible aura, a halo around your head. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And when they see your good works, they'll glorify the Father which is in heaven. The only way that could be is if those good works are motivated by the filling of God's Holy Spirit in your life as we would know later on from the epistles. But the idea is that of good works being the light. So therefore, when Christ says we're the light of the world, it means more than merely our witness by explaining the gospel to people. It means our life backing up that which we have said. Look as well at Colossians, the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 10. that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Now, mind you, walk worthy of the Lord. We want, to be, uh, we want to have a worthy walk. Well, this text tells us what the worthy walk involves. Being fruitful in every good work, that's part of it, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, uh, and so on. So the, the source of power comes from Jesus Christ, from the power of the Spirit of God in our life. But the, the areas that are vital here, first of all, fruitful in every good work, and then increasing in the knowledge of God. And then, of course, giving thanks and so on. All of this is interrelated. But you see, once again, good works are involved. There's nothing wrong with good works. It's not a nasty word. You might be interested to know that one of my favorite verses in the matter of salvation by grace is found in the book of Titus, chapter 3, verse 5, where it says, not, of works, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy as he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now that, along with Galatians 2, 8, 9, is a classic verse on the matter of good, uh, of good works not being able to save us. But the fascinating thing is that in the book of Titus, there is, with that verse saying works can never save you, there is more about good works percentage-wise than any book in Scripture. Because in the book of Titus, we're told that we are to have a pattern of good works, that we're to be zealous of good works, that we're to be ready to do good works, and that we're to maintain good works. And there are a couple of other passages as well uh, that, that relate to the concept of good works as well. So on one hand, he says you can't be saved by good works, but if you say that Titus is against good works, you're wrong. He's against good works to, for salvation and against good works to try to please God by good works, but he is all for the Spirit of God producing through the life of a believer God's good work. And that's, of course, what we have in Ephesians chapter 2 where it says, By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then what does it say? But we are his workmanship, his poimeia. We are his masterpiece, his work of artisan. He is is the artisan. We are his work. We are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And you see, you go through Scripture and you discover that the major concept of good works in regard to the Christian life has to do with the care of Christians and caring for unbelievers in some cases, but primarily the matter of reaching out to Christians that have needs. That is the way that God says we magnify his name, we glorify his name, we let our light so shine by simply reaching out to those that have need. 
Now, we'd like to think of good works as going to church all this time, uh, winning all kinds of souls, uh, uh, having all kinds of, of uh, activity, uh, and, and working up a storm for God, that this somehow is going to impress God. But you know, when John wrote his epistle, he says, if you see your brother in need, and you shut up your bowels of compassion, how can you claim that the love of God dwells in you? And if you check out the context there in 1 John, you discover that he is giving high priority for the Christian in regard to the concept of love. But he doesn't leave it there. It's not theoretical love. It is a very practical love that reaches out to those in need. We need to have a heart that is tender toward those in need. You realize that, that uh, in the uh, book of James the end of chapter 1, it says that pure religion and undefiled involves two things. Number one, visiting the widows and the orphans. Now mind you, to visit the widows and the orphans in, uh, can involve, in a minor sense, to go and see them. It can involve that. But that is not the major meaning of the word there. You know what it means? It means care for. Meet the needs of. Widows and orphans. And keep yourself unspotted from the world. God says that's pure religion. You want to sum up of what pure religion and undefiled is? He says here it is. That you care for widows and orphans. That is, those in need. You see, it's not only widows and orphans. It, it implies by its very... The widows and orphans was almost a classic statement to speak of those that had need. Because they were the most destitute in the ancient world. And by application, there's no reason we can't stretch that to include people that have husbands that don't care for them. And uh, who, who have uh, uh, families that love the Lord but... Uh, are, the man's unable to get a job and, and all of this kind of thing. But the idea was that there was a genuine reaching out to try to meet the needs of those people. And God says through James that that is pure religion and undefiled to visit, to care for those people. You realize that, that uh, James goes on in another passage there and he says that if you, uh, if, if you claim... Uh, that, that you, well, excuse me, let me put it this way. He, he's talking about faith and works there. And he says, he says here you're faced with a situation where, where you have a chance to demonstrate your faith by your works. He says, if someone comes to you and is destitute and in need, and you say to them, the Lord bless you, buddy. I'll believe God for something great for you. And you fail to meet their need, then your faith is dead. When you've got the $10 in, the, in your pocket to meet their need and you don't do it, then all the faith in the world isn't going to help them. What God wants you to do at that moment is reach into the wallet and pull out the 10 spot and hand it to them and give it to them. You ever read Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secrets? You remember that he had a great struggle about that. Going through a terrible time in his life uh, where he, had trust, he decided he was going to trust God <laughs> entirely. And he was working for a man, and the man kept, he was absent-minded, kept forgetting to pay him. And he'd made up his mind, no, if I'm going to trust the Lord, I'm not going to ask for what's coming to me. There's one for you. Instead of striking for higher wages, he says, I'll wait until God brings it to me. And he had a coin in his pocket. I don't remember what it was, but let's use English terms, and that way you'll, you'll, uh, you'll understand it better than anyway, because I, I, I guess we'll learn when we get to uh, the British Isles, we'll learn a little bit about the currency in, in England. But anyway, he has this coin in his pocket, and, uh, and he thought to himself in this time, of, he was invited to this house to see these people, and they were in desperate need, desperate need. He thought to himself, well, I'm needy too. If I had two coins, in other words, let's say he had 50 cents. If I had two quarters instead of 50 cents, I'd give them one of the quarters. And the Lord kept reminding him, you don't, though. All you've got is the 50 cents. And finally, after a great struggle in his soul, he handed the whole thing to them so that their need could be met. And God taught him a great lesson through that. Even though it was hand to mouth, it was God's hand to his mouth, and God provided for all of his needs. And it was some time later 
that his boss, without a reminder, suddenly realized he hadn't paid him. And he learned how to trust God. And as a result of that lesson, he learned how to trust God for things on the mission field that were unbelievable. Exercise faith rather than dunning people for what was needed. All right, now, Tabitha Dorcas was the kind of person who met needs. And she was one who showed good works. Simple, isn't it? A needle, a thread, a piece of cloth. In my hands, it wouldn't be worth anything. In the hands of a Dorcas, it becomes a comfort to a widow. I don't know what you have in your hand, but I think that you go through Scripture and you'll see God time after time when he calls people to service. He'll say to them, just like he did to Moses, what's in your hand? Remember Moses? What's in your hand? A staff? Throw it down. It became a serpent. Pick it up. It became a rod. And God used that rod so that it became the rod of God. And it was a rod that was used throughout his ministry. What's in your hand? A rod? A needle and thread? Some little thing? All of us can do something. We may not even do it exceptionally well. But are we willing to be a Dorcas and serve as unto the Lord? You know, before Dorcas got any honor or any recognition, she had to die. And God gave her, well, again, a second chance because she was raised from the dead. It might not have happened that way, but in God's economy it did. But again, the only recorded instance we have of Dorcas is this little story that talks about widows standing there showing the garments that she made and weeping over her death. I wonder, will anyone weep over our death? Showing what we have done? Or will they say, good riddance? He never was of any use to anyone. Service. Let's be willing servants of the Lord. We'll get back at it next week and finish up this section, Lord willing. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of sharing these things tonight. It's so meaningful just to see that there are others that served and were hardly mentioned, just mentioned in a few verses but given, nevertheless, a place in the hall of fame of your word. We're thankful for these illustrations because we're just plain people like Ananias and like Dorcas and like others that we read about. We'll never be famous, and people won't know our names, but they'll remember that you blessed through our lives as we're faithful. Lord, Some of us are more talented than others. But help us, Lord, to use what you have given us to the maximum to meet the needs of those round about us. Grant this, we pray, in Christ's precious name. Amen.